Okay, this is the Theology 2 class, and uh, let's, let's start with prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, Josh's message that has called our attention to reorient our priorities, to make sure that Christ is first in everything. Um, Lord, it is so easy to pursue what is good and miss what is best to forget our first love and uh, lord we don't want to do that we know we tend to do that and we know we stray we know our hearts are prone to wander lord we feel it but lord help us to just always be sensitive to that so that our hearts will be drawn back to our first love continually when we wander and we ask that as we study your word you would just continue to help us become increasingly enamored with Christ so that we will want to sit at his feet and not be distracted. That's this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so last Sunday, we started talking about adoption. So how would you describe the doctrine of adoption to somebody? So you were discipling somebody, drinking some coffee, and you wanted to talk about adoption, and somebody says, what does that mean? What would you say? In a biblical context, just to be clear. Be chosen. To be chosen? Okay. Okay, to be forgiving or to be forgiven? I mean that one. The latter. Okay, what else? Any other? You're no longer an orphan, you're lost, you have a place, and you have a person that can that you can call father. Okay. Will love you just as you are. All you gotta do is just come. Capital F. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts? Yeah, so if um, we talked about in you know about two weeks ago, we finished up with justification which is a legal declaration um, that you are, have a legal standing of righteousness uh, in God's eyes. And uh, adoption is also a legal declara- declaration, just like um, it is in our earthly sense when somebody is adopted on earth, when a family adopts a child, um, a legal declaration in the court is made that this child now belongs to this family, to these parents. And so in the spiritual world, in the Bible, in the biblical terms, adoption is God's legal declaration in his courtroom uh, that 
we are His children, that we have been adopted into His family, which alters our relationship with Him, as somebody mentioned, which we call Him Father, and in which we receive all of the blessings inherent uh, with being part of that family, being a part, being a child of the King, the Creator of the universe. And so, that'd be a short, quick. Now, those other things that are listed up there aren't wrong. I mean, to be adopted, you have to be chosen. If you are adopted, you have been forgiven. But just to be a little more concise and precise, we talk about a legal declaration of being made a family member of God's family. So, being a son or daughter of God. Now, we talked about some biblical examples of adoption last time. We talked about... um, Anybody remember some of those Bible examples of adoption that we see? Or some of the names of persons who were adopted? Moses. Moses. Good memory. I see somebody, I see somebody uh, whispering Mephibosheth back there. Did somebody say Esther? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Esther. Yep, adopted by Mordecai. Yeah. Jesus, in one sense, is a legal, the only legally the child of Joseph. Uh, so we see that. Now, when we talk about any of this theology, or any of the things we've talked about in, in studying God's, um, God's salvation, uh, we always want to understand the relevance of it. Pra- uh, theology should always have a practical component of it, right? We're not here just to pump your heads full of knowledge, uh, that you know, a seminary kind of knowledge or anything like that. This is uh, relevant. I mean, God put it in His Word for a purpose for us to know. So how would you describe to somebody what the relevance of knowing adoption? Knowing that you're, if you're saved, you're an adopted child of God. Why, why is that important to know? Explains your relationship with God. Yeah. How do I relate to this being who created me? Any other thoughts? Determines our destination. Yeah. Kind of knowing, uh, knowing where you're going. Destination. kind of similar to that, you might say like, my purpose. Similar to a relationship would be kind of like your role. Like, uh, a child has certain responsibility that, you know, the neighbor's kid does not. Yeah. Roles, responsibilities, kind of uh, uh, these two purpose, role, responsibilities, inherent, kind of like a identity, right? If you're adopted, we're talking about your identity in Christ. Who are you in Christ? And then what does that mean? Okay, I'm a child of God. But what, is that, what is the impact of that? What does it mean for me? How am I supposed to live now? It has a big impact in that. So all of these are very great answers and are kind of very interwoven with each other. Absolutely. So we talked about how there's lots of... Um, 
lots of ways God has revealed Himself to us in scriptures that dictate how we relate to Him. Um, and it can be easy to uh, uh, overemphasize one attribute of God at the detriment of others, and then we can become imbalanced in our relationship with Him. Uh, For example, if we only focus on God uh, being a God of love, we can then, uh, what would you think would be the the harm of doing that if we overemphasize God's love? Yeah, you might uh, chuck truth out the window, right? Um, might get a little too cozy with God. You, you, uh, what's the phrase? Is um, uh, you become too familiar with Him, and you lose respect for Him. You lose respect for His commands. You start to maybe then abuse His grace. Uh, And and with something that Paul speaks directly to, uh, the very last verse of Romans chapter five, and then right first verse of chapter six. Uh, at the end of verse uh, chapter five, he says, um, uh, that "Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more." What a wonderful truth of God's love and grace. That's why we sing the song, "His mercy is more." Right? Our sins they are many; His mercy is more. But Paul knew and anticipated abuses and objections to that. So in the very beginning of chapter 6, he says, So what then? Shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound all the more? All right? Sometimes we can get twisted in our thinking and think, Well, man, if, if it gives God glory to show His grace, yeah, I'm just going to sin. No big deal. I'll just go and ask God for forgiveness. He'll give it to me. All right? So just a note, uh, uh, Overemphasis on just one aspect of God at the detriment of others. What about if we overemphasized God's um, uh, role as king and creator? What would be some of the dangers if we just focused on that? Forget he's loving. Forget he's loving. We would distance ourselves more. We would distance ourselves more for sure. Yeah, one word one of you guys used last Sunday that was great was intimidating. We'd be intimidated by God, and that you know, and that we wouldn't want to draw near to Him. We wouldn't want to approach Him, or when we do approach Him, it would be one of of fear. You want uh, uh, viewing God as this like uh, uh, um, unstable deity. You know, like a Zeus, like Greek mythology. Like if I st- if I do the wrong thing, he's gonna throw a lightning bolt at me, and I better approach him and and placate him. And you know, we kind of become practical Catholics. It's like, okay, before I can go to God, I- I've blown it this time. I'm just gonna I gotta I'm gonna pray a couple times. I'm gonna read my I'm gonna read 15 chapters of the Bible, and and then God will know that I really mean it. That I'm sorry this time, and then I can go to Him in prayer. So we kind of basically become a practical Catholic. Start doing penance, doing our hail, our own version of Hail Marys. So that, there's a danger in those. And so adoption helps remind us and soften uh, some of those aspects in a well-rounded view of God that, yes, He is our King and our Creator. There is a, a, an appropriate distinction of Creator versus created. There's an appropriate distinction of King and versus citizen, 
master, slave. All these distinctions are in the Bible, but so is father and son and daughter. And you're like, well, it's hard for me to balance all those. I know. It is very hard. God is bigger than we are, but it's just important to keep all these in mind so that we relate in our relationship with Him accurately. So key passage in your handout there, uh, page 11, bottom of page 11, Romans, Romans 8. There's a couple of key passages, but this one I would say is kind of the um, pinnacle passage on, on uh, adoption. So Romans 8, 14 through 17 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now one phrase in that passage that I kind of left you hanging on last week and left you with a question was uh, the phrase that he himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And so I kind of just asked you guys to think about, try to put a little, uh, a little pebble in your shoe to bother you throughout the week of how do you know when it is the Spirit who is testifying to you that you're a child of God versus indigestion. You know? So whether you whether that liver quiver you got is some supernatural working of God or some just weird emotional mental thing going on in your brain. If it's consistent with scripture? Okay. What's consistent with Scripture? What you feel you're being told. Okay. If what I feel I'm being told is consistent with Scripture. So if I say, I feel like God is telling me I'm a child of God. But the person who's saying that never goes to church, never reads their Bible, swears like a sailor, and just lives their life completely devoid of any pursuit of Christ, but they say, oh, I feel like I'm a child of God. He created all of us, right? I mean, how would you, how would you respond? Scripture wouldn't call that person a child of God. Okay. I agree. Look at the passage that we're in there, too. You'll see a little bit of the support of what you're saying there. I agree, I agree with what Katie's saying. What are some evidences, just based on these three verses that we're in, that somebody who says, the Spirit does testify to me that I am a child of God, what, how would you be able to objectively discern that that's real? Look at verse 14. What's an evidence that somebody actively has the Spirit testifying in their life? Okay. 
Yeah. Being Absolutely. Yes. So verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, you can't back up if you're in the handout, but if you're in your Bible, back up one verse to verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So how do you know if somebody's being led by the Spirit according to verse 13? What is that person doing? Putting to death their sinful nature. Yeah, putting to death their sinful nature. Repenting. Putting on righteousness in its place. Being renewed in your mind. That's somebody who's being led by the Spirit. So there's one example. So, you know, in that silly illustration I shared of, okay, who, somebody says, I'm a child of God, but never goes to church, you know, has no, uh, no uh, evidence of pursuing Jesus, you know, swears like a sailor and doesn't care. There's, that person is not being led by the Spirit of God. There's no evidence they're putting to death the things that God calls sin in their life. What else? Look at verse 15, Romans chapter 8, verse 15. What would be another evidence that somebody has an internal testimony of the Holy Spirit bearing the testimony that they're adopted? Somebody who's not adopted, somebody who is not led by the Spirit, what are they characterized by, according to verse 15? Fear. Fear. Fear of what? It doesn't say in the passage. It's kind of a more implicit based on the rest of your knowledge of Scripture. What would somebody be afraid of who's not in Christ? Death. death. And why would somebody be afraid of death? Final. It's final, but is death really the end? You don't know Christ. What happens after death? Judgment day. Judgment. You're judged as soon as you as soon as you pass over in this world. Yeah. The afterlife. That's right. Yeah. So for those who are not in Christ, death is not the I mean death is not the end for anybody. But uh, for those who are not in Christ, you have fear of judgment. Fear of standing before the Lord and the Creator. But for those who are in Christ, for those who have received the Spirit, the seal of the, of the, the promised seal of the Spirit, who testifies to your children of God, they don't, you don't fall back into fear because you know Christ has died for your sins once and for all. The penalty has been paid. There's a. It's sometimes hard when you've been a Christian for a long time it's hard to remind ourselves of those feelings we had uh, in our initial con conversion. Even if you grew up in a Christian home, even if you don't have a dramatic, what I would call a dramatic testimony, you know, where it's like, I was in the alley, I was high on drugs, I was about to die, and somebody handed me a gospel tract, and boom, I just was saved right then and there. Even if that's not you, you're like, I grew up in church all my life, heard the Bible stories, Still, at the moment of conversion, though you may not have been able to articulate all it, you knew and you felt the burden of guilt 
off of your shoulders. You felt a relief and a joy and a peace and a love for the Savior who died for you. And you felt it strong. There was no more fear, only joy, only delight. And it's good for us to remind ourselves and think about that on a daily basis. And we do, you know, if we're practicing uh, in your ongoing sanctification, 1 John 1, 9, you know, that we confess our sins to Him regularly, that He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It reminds us that Christ paid for it all once, once and for all. But that's another way we see Him bear witness that we are children of God. That, our, that change of relationship where we cry, Abba, Father, and we're no longer enemies. What, what would be another one? There's one that's not really in this passage. I mean, it's, it, it, you could get there um, from verse 14 when you're led by the Spirit. But I'm thinking of another passage in another epistle that talks about the Holy Spirit working in our lives. How would you know that the Spirit is bearing witness that you're a child of God? What are some other evidences that you are led by the Holy Spirit. We said put to death the deeds of the body, but what about, that's kind of a negative aspect. What would be the positive aspect of the Spirit working in somebody? Peace, joy, love. Fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, right? That'd be another evidence, objective evidence that you could look at somebody's life and you could evaluate your own life and see, yes, the Spirit is testifying that I am a child of God. Am I? Yep. Like for me, um, I've had people, I've had people be like, expecting me to be this perfect Christian, and this is what I get at my work field, and it's like, no, I'm far from perfect. And um, I've been asked over and over again, Jennifer, why, with these people that do you wrong? Why is it that you still keep giving them grace? Why is it that you still keep giving them kindness? And it's like, well, I'll let's just say, isn't that something that God would do? Hmm. And plus I have, I was baptized and that's the best decision that I've ever made. So he instilled that in me. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I mean, God gave you a new heart and new desires. And to, to live like the Savior, uh, you know, loves you, love others like t- Jesus loved you, like you said, that's great. That is a testimony to people when they ask you that. That's giving an answer for the hope that you have within. You know, that's awesome. So when we see verse sixteen, the Spirit Himself bears witness. Kind of our tendency is just automatically think like, oh, He's like talking like inside of us, like we hear some still small voice inside you. You're a child of God. Okay, good. <laughs> but the Spirit doesn't bear that testimony in that way. I mean, like I said, there is a supernatural aspect where, uh, as I remind you of your, of your conversion, where you do feel different. That weight, that burden, like I love John, uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, as you climb Mount Calvary, the, the giant burden of sin that was weighing you down is cut and loose, and it rolls down the hill and is buried. You feel that. 
You, you feel joy. You feel peace. That is the Spirit working in you. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2 talks about how the Spirit illuminates our hearts. He opens up our minds to be able to understand spiritual things. That's another way the Spirit bears testimony in your life. You can understand the things of Scripture. Like, there's a difference between knowing what the Bible says and understanding it and living it. Like, there's a lot of people out there in the world who know the Bible better than I do and actually aren't saved. But there's a difference when the Holy Spirit illuminates your heart, opens your mind. He's bearing witness that you are a child of God. So there are objective ways to understand that you're a child of God. It's not just this subjective, like, how am I feeling today? Because our feelings are fickle. Our feelings are not always correct and accurate. They're a gift from God, but they're not always accurate. They need to be informed by Scripture. As Katie was pointing out, does it align with Scripture and what Scripture has to say? All right. Any questions about that? Kind of overlap a little bit in the realm of talking about assurance of salvation a bit, too. Though we'll talk about that more fully in the weeks to come. Okay. Uh, another passage is Galatians uh, chapter 4. And I think that's in your handout, page 12. Yep. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Somebody volunteer to read that. Based on that passage, we see a lot of similarities in some of the language to Romans 8. You see that similar phrase of those who are adopted cry out, Abba, Father. Right? There's a big similarity there. But what, what would, how would you summarize what is some of the blessing in this passage of being adopted? What are some of the perks, the benefits? No longer a slave. Yes, that's a huge one. No longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So one thing is, it's uh, we are used to be under the law, right? But in verse 5, he says, we have been redeemed, to redeem those who were under the law. What does that mean, to be under the law? Judged by it. Yeah, under its judgment. <clears throat> One other aspect to being under the law. Every action you do, um, whether it's a free will or of God's, um, if it's bad, you have a consequences. If it's good, you have a positive outcome. Whether it's the will of man or by the will of God. But I like to think that by the will of God, it's always a positive outcome if you go with His. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Brent said, under the law, meaning we are under its judgment, or I could even say the penalty of the law. So you're under its curse. Jesus became a curse for us to set us free from the curse of the law. But I'd also say 
when they talk about being under the law, under its obligation to obey it and keep it perfectly, doesn't mean we don't continue to abide by the law in a sense of the law of Christ. That's a whole other topic we can talk about. Uh, being a, we are no longer under the old covenant. We are no longer obligated to obey the old covenant laws, the 630-some laws you see in the Old Testament. But we're not lawless. We have a new and a better law. We have the law of Christ written on our hearts, which is far superior And so Jesus fulfilled the obligation. He obeyed perfectly on our behalf, and he took the punishment we deserved. So now we are no longer under the law, but we are not lawless as Christians. We uh, live under the law of Christ. I don't need uh, a every single enumeration of law to tell me um, how to love God uh, and to love my neighbor, right? That's the greatest commandment. That's the whole summary of the law of the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole law, all 637 commands summarized in that. I don't need all those 630 commands to delineate how to do that. You know, like one law in the Old Testament is don't move the boundary marker of your neighbor. The law of Christ is better than that because not only will I not do that because I know that's not loving, I'll move my boundary marker to give my neighbor more land to help them because I love them. And because the generosity of Christ and His generousness to me flows through me and now I want to be generous like my Savior. So I'm going to help people above and beyond. I'm not just going to steal. I'm not going to steal anymore. I'm going to give. I'm going to be a giver because that's what my God did to me. That's the law of Christ at work. We've been set free from that, and we have been through our adoption, and now we are no longer slaves, but we are now a son, meaning we are heirs. Heirs, we have an inheritance. What is that inheritance? We hear this word all the time, and we've become heirs, and we have an inheritance, but what is it? If you go back to Romans chapter 8... There's a couple verses that is not in your handout. Romans chapter 8 says um, in verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. So according to verse 17... What does part of that inheritance look like? Suffering. Okay. This is something that uh, we uh, inherit in this life. Glorified with Him. Glorified with Him. Absolutely. Uh, Looking forward to that future day when we receive the inheritance. We receive that inheritance, a a glorification, um, where we, our physical bodies, are glorified just like His, where um, we are no longer um, struggle with sin, where we no longer suffer pain, no longer suffer sorrow, no longer suffer temptation. I just can't imagine that. An inspiration? An inspiration to all. Oh, yeah, for absolutely, yes. Hope-inspiring, absolutely. 
And he says, he qualifies it even further in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Like like you're saying, we're inspired, we're waiting, hoping eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And 1 Peter chapter 1 describes the inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. But also, as Gabe was kind of hinting at, there is an aspect of our inheritance that we have now, and that is our relationship with the Father. We don't have to wait till heaven to be children of God. We can call Him Abba, Father, now. We relate to Him like that now. It says in 1 John 3, 1 through 2, even though we are children now, it says what we will be has not yet appeared, and but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. What an awesome, hopeful thing to cling to. That's what it looks like to keep your mind on things that are above, as Josh talked about in his sermon today. Um, Turn to Luke chapter 12. Just another sweet aspect of adoption that I want us to see that just helps, I just think, make you marvel at God's love for us. Luke chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. This this passage does not use the term adoption, but it refers to God as Father. So I believe this can be implied and inferred that we are talking about our adopted relationship. But can somebody read for me Luke 12, 29 through 32? On what you will eat or drink, do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. What are some encouragement, encouraging truths and principles you see in there? Uh, that you experience now in this life because of your adoption status. Provider. Absolutely. Our Father is our provider. What else? I'm encouraged to read that he knows what I need. I feel like I don't know what I need half the time. Yeah. That's so sweet. I Another way to say that is he cares, right? He cares and he knows what you need when often we don't. We don't have a clue. We think we know what we need, right? As Josh was kind of bringing that out in his sermon. There's things we think we need, and we think Jesus is the one who's going to give it to us. But Jesus promises to always give us what we actually need, thankfully, because the things I often think I want, I don't need. But it just says, the, your father knows that you need them. Need what? Food, drink, clothing, if you think about like the parallel passage in Matthew 6. God clothes the lilies of the field. He feeds the birds in the air, and yet... He, you are so much more precious to Him than those things. 
So how will he not take that much more care of you? He loves you. He loves you, absolutely. He knows what you need. And these things will be added to you. There's a promise, and very similar to Matthew 6, the promise isn't just that this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Just pray, and God's going to take care of your food, and your drink, and your clothes. You just ask Him, and He'll give you the things you need. There's a qualifier. It says in verse 31, Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. As children of God, seek the will of your Father. Seek His kingdom, like Jesus taught us to pray. You know, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed, holy, be, your, your name be revered, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and then the prayers then go to my daily needs. But first and foremost, I'm supposed to seek God in His kingdom, and then God will take care of the things I need to fulfill that purpose for which He created me. Don't be afraid and don't be worried. That's the application of this. Don't be worried. Trust in the Lord. And I love this. The last phrase of 31. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You know, I talked about how this is so sweet. Like, justification leaves you in right standing legally with God. You are no longer His enemy. You are righteous in His eyes because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But adoption takes it one step further. God's just not like, we're okay now. I'm not mad at you anymore. It's, I actually delight in you. Like, I am happy. I smile. To I enjoy doing things for you, taking care of you, like we would do with our own children. You bring a smile to my face. I delight in giving you these things. That's a very sweet thing to think about. It's not an arduous task. It's not pestering God. Oh, God, these guys. I've got to give them this food. I've got to give them these things. He's happy to do it. He loves doing it. There's this sweet thing about adoption that we have an intimate relationship with the Father. That, as Hebrews 4 says, we can approach His throne. Right? He's still the king, still sitting on a throne, but we can approach Him with boldness and confidence because of what Christ has done. That we can call Christ our brother in one sense because He has been raised to life. He is what the Bible calls the first fruits of what we also will be. And so in that way, we share a kinship with Him. We have a similar inheritance to what He is. Now, we have to be careful, because when you say we're going to be like Him, um, there's always going to be a creator versus created distinction. That will never go away. So you can't be like the Mormons who say, oh, we're going to be little gods, little, little lowercase g gods in heaven. Nope, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what that means. God will always be God, transcendent, far beyond us. And we will always be His creation. But in some majestic, amazing, gracious aspect, He gives us the same quality of life that He has. Eternal life. Eternal life is not just duration. Now, that's often what we, uh, kind of our first 
a word association we go to when we think of eternal life, living forever. But John, John chapter 5, Jesus says, uh, this is eternal life, that they may know you. Eternal life is also a, a quality of life, of having a relationship with the Father. And then in the future inheritance, when we receive it, even sharing a quality of life that He Himself has, that glorified body, living in that glorified state, all because of the adoption. We don't have any time to get into sanctification today. That's okay, because I'd hate to jump into it and not get very far into it. Um, but I am really looking forward to that. But any questions about adoption or anything else we've talked about? I guess there's one other aspect of adoption that we didn't talk about. Real quick. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Real quick. I do not want to neglect this aspect of our adoption. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What's another, based on that passage, what's the benefit of being an adopted child of God? He's going to train you. He's going to train you. Yes. Yeah, discipline, um, it, it, we can often just think of it just in a punitive sense, but really the word there in the Greek just refers to training. And uh, certainly God trains us when we are in rebellion, when we're struggling with sin. He trains us and disciplines us uh, to, uh, as it says there, to produce uh, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Um, and it's one of the, it's one of the means, uh, main means and methods in which God keeps us in the faith. It's the one of the ways in which He preserves us. We'll talk about it when we talk about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. God keeps us from straying into apostasy. Lord, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. All right, as we sing in Come Thou Fount. But what is it that keeps us from fully wandering away? It's the loving discipline of our Father. It's not pleasant in the moment. My kids don't enjoy discipline at home in the moment. But uh, it is the most loving thing to do for them. And we trust and rest in God that He is doing that for us as well. But that's a benefit of being a son and daughter. If, if you're not a son or daughter of God, then it's just, dis it's just punishment. It's just suffering. It's just a foretaste of hell. So yeah, that's, that's I think the last thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, so yeah, any questions in our remaining minutes here?
God disciplines those he loves. What does he do with the non-believers? What's it called? I mean, called discipline? It's a good question. I, would, I don't have a, a scripture reference to back up what I would say in the moment. I was thinking about... Um, you know, God does not deal with us in accordance with our iniquities. The Psalms tell us that. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. God gives common grace to all. So... Um, without having studied that aspect in depth, I could probably see an aspect where God um, seeks to use suffering in this life to awaken people to their need for the gospel, and they might still never come to receive it. I mean, he did that with Israel, right? This is just a continual cycle uh, that Israel went through in the Old Testament of um, returning to the Lord and repenting. And then after the um, the heat and pressure and trials wore off and they kind of got into a stage of prosperity and softness again, and they reverted back to their idolatry again. And so then God brings, you know, he has a whole book of judges and brings an enemy nation to enslave them and cause suffering and pain. And then, you know, so in that sense, God was, even though majority of Israel were not genuine believers, you could maybe, maybe you would describe that as discipline in one sense. There were genuine believers in the midst. They're being disciplined as well. But uh, yeah, I don't know what the Bible would necessarily call it um, when people suffer. I mean, sometimes people just suffer because God pours out his wrath on them. God takes somebody out, you know, destroys the enemy nations. Um, you know, you look at Amos, and the book of Amos describes how God used Assyria to bring judgment on Israel for her sins, but then he also held Assyria responsible for it and then judged them for their sins. So in there, it's just, it's just judgment. It destroyed them. So, uh, but at the same time, he called them the, his rod, uh, that he exercised judgment on Israel. So, yeah, it's a good question, but I, I guess I don't know. I can't de definitively answer that for you, what he would call it when he allows um, unbelievers to go through pain, suffering, um, natural consequences, or just pours out his wrath and judges them right on the spot. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of things that we can't, we have to be careful when we are interpreting, uh, you know, sufferings in this world. Um, you know, the Bible with the when we read in scripture we have obviously the advantage of the holy spirit's inspiration giving us hindsight and so you see terrible calamities happen and the bible goes that was god's judgment god did that and then today though when we see terrible things happening like in our country it can't always be like well that's god's judgment that person must have been a sinner god did that like i don't know you know like that the job's friends got in trouble for doing that all right, they came over to Job and were like, Job, dude, all these bad things are happening to you. You must have done something wrong. That's They were wrong. I mean, he, yes, he wasn't a perfect man. He was a sinner just like the rest of us, but he had faith in the Lord, and he was not suffering because of any particular sin. Jesus rebuked his disciples for that as well. You know, John chapter 9, and the man born blind. They said, Jesus, what, what sin did this guy commit that he was born blind? And he said, it wasn't for any sin. It was so that the glory of God might be seen and healed him. And he was spiritually saved too. It's like, so we have to be careful interpreting 
those things, even in our own lives, it's like uh, God could be bringing you know, sickness, hardship, whatever kind into your life. And it's not because of necessarily because of a sin. It could be. Could be because you're maybe some natural consequence that God is allowing you to go through because of a sin, but not always. Just because somebody's sick doesn't mean like, oh, God says, oh, you messed up, so I'm making you sick now. God trains us through sufferings and hardships, through persecutions, through sufferings, to make us more godly. And yes, He disciplines us when we sin and when we err, but that doesn't mean every single thing you go through that's hard is because of some sin you did. So we have to be careful in discerning those things. The same thing with an unbeliever. If an unbeliever is suffering, it's like, oh, it's because of this specific sin in your life. Not necessarily. We live in a fallen world, a cursed world. If a bear mauls somebody in Colorado, it's not necessarily because of sin unless there was a prophet of God and you were calling him a baldy. That, that, that happens, you know, that happened in the Bible. But, uh, yeah, so he's, we'll be careful there. It's a good question, though. Any other questions? Got one minute. So are you one thing I'd like to keep in mind here is and I ask this all the time, who are you to judge when God is the one that knows every person's heart? That's exactly and right. I saw I saw this quote, this beautiful um, description. Um, it was a picture of all these people sitting in a chair and there's this one person who's like dressed in like leather and kind of like a gothic look or whatever and there's people saying what's he doing here he doesn't belong here he must be some terrible person and above in the picture above the guy that's all dressed in black and in a gothic look says god knows my heart hmm. so really if you're only seeing the outward appearance how well do you know the inner self of a person when God knows every single person's heart when you were made into your mother's womb? Mm. Yeah. That's good. Good, that good reminder. Scripture, you know, 1 Corinthians 3 and chapter 4, as well as Romans 13 and 14, uh, call us uh, to not judge other people's hearts. Uh, that's the Lord's job, and He will do that. And he will judge our heart. And we got to worry about that. we got to take that into account. So be careful about how you build upon the foundation of, of the gospel. Um, is your work going to be wood, hay, and stubble, or precious stones and gold? And that's what you ought to worry about. And God will test the works of other people. And uh, you can leave it in his hands. Um, so, yeah, this is a good reminder. All right, well, I'll let you guys go. And uh, so remember next week. All church meeting, prayer meeting uh, in the Family Center. And then uh, the following week after that, we will start into sanctification.